The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Theology. Oh, um, let me pass some papers out if you didn't pick one up on the way in. Oh, thank you very much. Um, So this is week three. The first week we talked about the um, just general topics in Christology. Um, last week we talked about Jesus' humanity. Uh, this week we're going to, be, going to be talking about Jesus' divinity or his deity. So um, by way of review, um, if you'll see the first section there, this is the same thing we had last week. I always want to keep us before this. So Um, three things we need to keep in front of us when we talk about the divinity of Christ. Uh, The first is this, is that Christ was fully human. The second idea is that Christ was fully divine. Third thing we need to keep in front of us and hold in our hand at all times is that Christ was fully human and fully divine in one person. And again, Props to John Kleinschmidt for mentioning it on a Sunday morning. This is called the hypostatic union. Yeah. Um, So in summary, Grudem says, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. And again, we talked about this Chalcedonian definition. So the Council of Chalcedon in 451 came up with this formulation about Christ they, they summarize the biblical evidence about who Jesus Christ is. And I said, if I do my job right, we'll be able to understand this whole thing by the end of our study. Uh, last week, we highlighted how this creed talks about Christ's humanity. I've underlined the portions that talk about Christ's divinity or his deity, his being God. So the Chalcedonian definition We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial, composed of the same same thing, being of the same substance, Consubstantial with the Father, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us, according to manhood. In all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. In these latter days, for us and our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, and we'll get to the rest next week. So here we see it in the creed, Jesus' divinity, his being God. So just by way of review, first week we talked that Christ was preexistent. He existed before all time. He always existed. There was not a time when he didn't exist. We talked how he was born of a virgin. And last week we talked about his humanity. He was fully and completely human. 
And we talked about the implications of that. So this week we're talking about Christ's divinity. Week three, Jesus Christ was truly and fully divine. And we could say Christ is fully and truly divine. A quick question I had for us just to get us thinking. Last week I asked, what does it mean to you to be human? What does humanity mean to you? Uh, This week I want to ask a similar question um, in you know, there may be right or wrong answers, but it's, it's good for us just at least talk out loud. What does it mean to be God or to be divine or to be deity? And then how does that differ from being human or being created? So again, what does it mean to be divine, to be God, to be a deity? And then how does that differ from humanity or created things? You can answer one or both of those questions. No needs outside of yourself. Good, John. So everything you need is supplied by you. You are self-existent, self-sufficient, self-sustaining. Good. Not created. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Not, Not created. Not created. Any other thoughts about what it means to be God or to be divine or to be deity? Hmm. Yeah, the the omni is like so able able to be all powerful, able to know all things, able to be all wise. Um, yeah, very very good. Every, able to be everywhere. Do what you want and get your own way, right? I mean, just think about the Greek God, like, right? They're in charge of everything. Oh, yeah, sure. They can just, like, what they said happened, you know? Yeah. 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 Our God, Him being good and true and right and holy, um, He can do whatever He wants, but whatever He wants to do is going to be an outflowing of those things. Yeah. Good, Jonathan. And we as humans can't do whatever we want, can't get whatever we want. Good. Well, that's, that's good for us to think through. Um, what does it mean to be divine and what does it mean to be, to be human? So we'll see that Jesus Christ was and is fully, fully divine. So we're going to approach this topic a couple different ways. Uh, the first is we're going to look at direct scriptural claims of Christ's deity. I want to start with a quote from Louis Burkhoff. I love this quote. This is good. In view of the widespread denial of the deity of Christ, it is of utmost importance to be thoroughly conversant with the Scripture proof for it. The proof is so abundant that no one who accepts the Bible as the infallible Word of God can entertain any doubt on this point. That is to say, Scripture if we view it rightly as the infallible word of God, which we do, Scripture is crystal clear that Jesus Christ is divine. The proof is so abundant that no one who accepts the Bible as the infallible word of God can entertain any doubt on this point. So proof number one. We see in Scripture many times 
that the word God is used of Christ. The word God is used to describe Christ. We can go back, we get more specific. This is the Greek word theos. And it's our English, the English translation is, is simply God. I put a little Greek definition there. And if you'll see uh, Greek, uh, theos, of uncertain origin, God, a God. And then look at the different ways it's used. Divinely one use, but God 1,267 times. So the New Testament, when it uses theos, this might be the whole, I don't know if this is just the New Testament or the whole, whole of Scripture, um, but when the Greek word theos is used, it really, literally means God. So John 1.1, 1, 1, classic, right? In the beginning was the Word, and we understand the Word to be Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we have that word God, theos, being used of Christ. The word was God. Romans 9.5, talking about Israel. Paul says this, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ. Who is Christ? Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. So Paul equates Jesus Christ with God. He uses the word theos, God, theos over all, to describe Christ. Titus, Titus similarly, Titus 2.13, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, in godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our who? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the glory of Je Jesus is coming back. It's going to appear. So we're waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, one and, one and the same. God and Savior are describing Jesus Christ. So Paul, again, is using the Greek word theos, God, to describe Jesus Christ. And then we, we look at the Old Testament, and we look at the Old Testament and how the New Testament talks about the Old Testament. And, and first of all, I'll stop here and say this. Um, it, when, I, when I started writing this, I was kind of, I, I viewed this as, this is probably going to be the, uh, maybe the most boring of the four weeks because, like, really, this Jesus is God. Yeah, Brian, we get it, right? And, but then I started doing this, and I, I'm like, you know, what Louis Burkhoff said was right. I mean, Scripture is abundantly clear, and it's not just one of those assumptions we just carry around with us. When we stop and look at the Scriptures, just how how much importance it places on Jesus, and not just importance, but it, it talks about Jesus being our God, I started to get really excited and then seeing all the different ways, so not just like the verses that say God is, or Jesus is God, but all the different ways that the New Testament and Scripture in general talks about Jesus being God. It's, it's exciting, and I hope this excites you as well. But specifically, I, I like this little pairing. So in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 1, chapter 1 quotes, well, Hebrews quotes a lot from the Psalms and from the Old Testament 
But Hebrews 1.8 quotes Psalm 45. So let's read Psalm 45 first. So we're in the Old Testament, and this is before Jesus Christ was a man and was, was on earth in the incarnation. And Psalm says this, speaking of God, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So that's what Psalm, the book of Psalms, talk about Jesus, or talked about God. Then we get to the book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews says this Of the angels, he says, make his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, So talking about Jesus Christ, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So you see what the author of Hebrews did there? He took an Old Testament reference to God, and then he talks about, then he says this, the beginning of verse 8, but of the Son, he says, and then bam, inserts that quote from the Old Testament. So he's basically saying that when the Old Testament talks of God, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. And we go to the Old Testament again, Isaiah 9, 6. This is good. This is looking forward to Christ. So this, again, is before the incarnation, looking forward to Christ, looking forward to a Savior. Isaiah says this, For to us a child is born. Talking about the birth of Christ. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Jesus, the Old Testament speaks of Jesus looking forward to his birth. Say, talks about Jesus being Mighty God. Now, a man and I were talking last night, And I never really, I've read this verse a lot. You hear it every Christmas, right? You read it in Christmas cards. But uh, I thought it was interesting and uh, a little confusing at first because it's talking about Jesus. He'll be the wonderful counselor. He'll be born. He'll be mighty God. He'll be the prince of peace. But then it says he'll be everlasting father. That's kind of of weird, right? So I had to to look at that. And I, I would quote it, but it's deep in my backpack there. I looked up in the, the ESV study Bible, and apparently father was a way of talking about um, kingship, being a benevolent king, a good king, a good ruler, a good la- a leader. So thinking about a benevolent father, an everlasting father um, in Christ in, in terms of kingdom language, it's just saying that Jesus will be, it's not saying he's God the father, it's saying he's going to be like a good father. He's going to be a good ruler. He's going to be a good uh, caretaker of, of creation of God's, of God's people. But, um, yeah, I wasn't quite ready. I came across that. I'm like, wow, that derails a lot of, a lot of things, um, which is why we have to have a good understanding of it. But Isaiah, Jesus Christ will be called mighty God is the main point of that. So that's proof number one that the word theos, or the word God, was used of Jesus Christ. So we get to proof number two. We see that the word Lord is used of Christ. 
And the, the word Lord is from the Greek word kurios, which in English we translate Lord. And there I have again the, the, the Greek lexicon definition. Um, Grudem says this. This is a good explanation. Kurios can be used in polite address to a superior like sir. So like we talk about Downton Abbey. You know, Carson the butler will say my lord, talking about, um, what's his face? Uh, what's that? Lord Grantham, thank you. We, we watched the finale like two weeks ago, and I already forgotten all about it, which that really... Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Amanda loved it, and she was really sad that it ended. But um, anyway, good ending. Everyone's happy, right? Um, so yeah, my, my Lord. So a human was able to say to another human, my Lord. It's a sign of respect, a sign of politeness. Um, Grudem says this, but the, but the word kurios is used... 6,814 times in the Greek Old Testament as a translation for Yahweh or as it is translated or as it is translated Lord or Jehovah. Therefore, any Greek-speaking reader at the time of the New Testament who had any knowledge of the Greek Old Testament would have recognized that in context where it is appropriate the word Lord was the name of the one who was the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, the omnipotent God. So some may say, some may read the New Testament, non-believers or skeptics might read the New Testament and, and say, well, when Jesus is called Lord, that's just people being really nice to Jesus. That's people recognizing that he's greater than they are. It's just like saying, my, my Lord or, or Sir. Grudem is saying that's not the case because the word Lord, the Greek word kurios, it could mean that polite term, but it, it universally almost always meant the name of, of, of the Lord, Yahweh. So when we get to the New Testament and we see that word kurios applied to Jesus Christ, it's, it carries the same weight as, as God. For example, Luke 2.11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. It's not saying who is Christ, we should be polite to him. saying it's Christ the Lord, Christ God. Another example, Luke 1.43, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So Elizabeth is saying, Mary, that little baby in your womb is, is God. He is Lord. Matthew 3.3 3. For this is, he who was uh, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, talking about the coming of Jesus, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Jesus is coming. It doesn't say prepare the way of a, of a great guy, prepare the way of this great prophet. No, prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of God. First Corinthians, therefore, to the one eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, meaning Christians, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things 
and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Lord, kurios, Jesus Christ. Revelation, on his robe and on his thigh, talking about Jesus, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So there we have again, Theos is used of Christ, Lord is used of Christ, and and lastly, before we pause for questions and comments, other strong claims to deity. Um, John 8, 57 and 58. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old, him being Jesus, you are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Because Jesus says, you know, said that. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We talked about this when we talked about Christ's preexistence. Christ has existed from eternity past. And so he's saying, you know, before Abraham, before this guy, a couple thousand years ago, I existed before him. And, and really, for that to be the case, Jesus was God. But also, Jesus uses words intentionally. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Um, I'm of the opinion that, that Jesus is not only saying that I existed before Abraham existed, but he's also saying, um, you know, when, when God revealed himself to Moses, to the people in the Old Testament, he says, I'm the, the great I am. I am. I am who I am. And so for Jesus to say, I am, I think he's saying, I am God. I, I am. I am the I am. So Jesus, speaking it like it is, I existed before Abraham did, but not only did I exist, I am. I am. Revelation 22, this is Jesus speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, first and last Greek letters, uh, letters of the Greek al- alphabet. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So Christ has always existed. The only thing that always existed is, is God. Hebrews 1.3 says this, speaking of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So He's the radiance of the glory of God, but not only that, He's the exact imprint of His nature. So the nature of God is the, the, the being of God. And if Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, which is Godness, then Jesus himself is God. And what does he do? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Only something, only something God could do. So there, there's some direct scriptural claims. We see that the word theos is used to speak of, of Jesus. The, the word kurios or Lord was used to speak of Jesus. And then other strong claims that Jesus um, and, and the biblical authors talk about Jesus. So before we get on to other, um, other topics of, of why Christ is God, do you have any questions or comments uh, on those verses or on those sections?
Yeah, there sure is. I'm, I'm, that's a great question. So every Bible will explain it differently. Usually, um, so I, I have ESV. I'm pretty sure I could find it quickly. But when they, when they do that, they're, they're telling you something. When, when Lord is in kind of a, a, a weird kind of all caps thing, um, it's, it's, that's where the word Yahweh, the, the proper name of God is used. When it's just Lord capitalized, that could be Adonai or another way of talking about um, the Lord. So, yeah, I can't find it as quickly as I, I thought. But, um, but, but look, in the front of your Bible should have like some translation notes and... And yeah, that's what, that's what my, man, I wish I could find it. But yeah, that, that's, that's the basis of it. And nearly, nearly all versions of the, of the Bible um, have it that way. If anyone can find it in their Bible, I'd be happy to hear it. But yeah. yeah, good question, Adam. Yeah. So it's very significant. So when you're reading, and I love that it does that because you don't have to know Hebrew to know what they're what they're saying there. That's one of the few places where, like, the English is, uses the same English word, but the, the text kind of tells you what, what words actually use. So, yeah, great question, Adam. Yeah, it's not very sneaky. Like, I mean, it's... Yeah, the, it's not like an implied, like, and they might have been maybe upset about it. It's like, no, like, you could see, feel the vehemence almost coming off the page. They're like, let me kill the guy now because no human is allowed to make those kinds of claims. Yeah. Which is partially what Jesus is saying. Right, yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, totally agree. Not very sneaky at all. Yeah.
That's that's good. Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, so Jesus was worshipped, and he didn't say no. Don't don't worship me. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, double whammy, Lord and God, right? Yeah, that's good. Y'all love Thomas. I love Thomas. Great, well, let's, let's move on. We'll have, have time for questions and comments, comments later. Um, so we, we looked at direct scriptural claims. So where the scriptures say, this is exactly who Jesus is. Now we're going to look at, this is... Um, not more, not more subtle, but but you have to think about it more. It's, it's more of a theological reason rather than just directly. Scripture says this, um, and the first is this: Jesus was omnipotent. So we're getting to the om- omnis, Rebecca. Uh, Jesus was omnipotent, and I didn't write this down, but I probably should have. And the second half of that is, and only God is omnipotent. So Jesus was omnipotent. And we know that only God is omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent. We could break that word apart, means all-powerful. And several examples of this in Scripture. But um, some, some easy examples is Jesus calmed the storm. Remember that? So there's a storm brewing in a boat, and Jesus is there. They wake Jesus up, and then he says to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? So the disciples not not fully getting it yet. They rightly say he's a man, which we talked about last week. He was. But Jesus gets up, rebukes the wind, everything calms down. And then the disciples' commentary, the, the winds and the sea obey him. So that's an act of being all-powerful. No, no human can say, wind, die down, storm, go away. So Jesus calmed the storm. He's all-powerful. He multiplied the loaves and fishes. Then he, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and take the five loaves and the two fish. We all know the story. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And afterwards, they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Another story we don't think a lot about, like, it's, it's like, well, that's a good story for the kids' book, the kids' Bible. But, you know, it's, it's a story we know. But, but, but think about that. Like, that is a miracle. No, no man could multiply matter can multiply fish and bread 
to feed 5,000 5, men plus women and children. So another example of Jesus being all-powerful. He just, he just did it. And this is a long text, but we all know the story about Jesus turning water into wine. They're at a wedding, run out of wine. Jesus says, fill up, fill up the, the, these jars, turns into wine, and everyone's, everyone's happy. No, no, man, no man can do this. this. This is an example of an all-powerful and omnipotent, omnipotent God. So that's, that's one. Jesus was omnipotent, and only God is omnipotent. Second theological claim is this that Jesus was eternal and only God is eternal. Jesus was eternal and only God is eternal. This is the verse we looked at earlier. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the te- temple. So Jesus existed before all creation, before Abraham. He's eternal. Jesus was eternal and only God is eternal. Third, getting back to the omni, Jesus was omniscient. Omniscience is all-knowing. So Jesus was all-knowing, and only God is all-knowing. So Jesus knew everything. Being God, he knew everything. And immediately, this is Mark 2, 8, and immediately Jesus, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? So let's slow down. It says, Jesus perceived in his spirit, so he sensed something, that these people questioned within themselves. So it doesn't say Jesus perceived that they were, they questioned within themselves, or they, they were questioning because they were frowning or because they were asking questions. But Jesus perceived that these people were having doubts with, within themselves. So Jesus was all-knowing. He knew what those people we're thinking. And his disciples give a telling explanation. John 16, and his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So his disciples say, We know you know all things. We, we now know this. We now know you know all things. This is why we believe that you came from God. Fourth, Jesus is shown to be worthy of worship. Dovetailing off what John said, and only God is worthy of worship. Anything else is idolatry, right? Jesus is shown to be worthy of worship, and only God is worthy of worship. Matthew 14, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And, and Jesus doesn't do anything. Like John said, Jesus didn't say, Nope, don't worship me. Not God. He didn't say that. He accepted the worship. Philippians 2 9 through 11. This is talking about Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, being Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so, at, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is worthy of worship. Every knee is going to bow before Jesus and every tongue is going to confess that he's Lord. So people are going to worship him and only God is worthy of worship. 
Hebrews 1.6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let, the firstborn being Jesus, let all God's angels worship him. So angels worship Jesus. So Jesus is shown to be worthy of worship, and only God is worthy of worship. Fifth, Jesus forgave sins, and forgives sins, but Jesus forgave sins, we see in Scripture, and only God can forgive sins. I love this because the, the Pharisees, the people that, that Jesus is speaking true, uh, truth to, are in a way speaking truth to themselves, in, in part. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus forgave this man's sins. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. But here's where they speak truth. Who can forgive sins but God alone? <laughs> exactly, right? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus forgave the paralytic's sins. And lastly, Jesus was immortal, and only God is immortal. John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And we see that's exactly what happened. Jesus died, and he, he rose. Death could not keep a hold of him. John ten seventeen. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And what's this looking forward to? This is looking forward to Christ's death and his resurrection. I lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So in conclusion, there's a typo. It's not Jesus Christ. In conclusion, Jesus Christ, put a little T there, is fully divine. Jesus is God. So with that being said, um, any questions or any comments? So let me read Louis Burkhoff's quote again. This is top of page two if, if you want to follow along. Louis Burkhoff in the view of the widespread denial of the deity of Christ, it is of utmost importance to be thoroughly conversant with the Scripture proof for it. The proof is so abundant that no one who accepts the Bible as the infallible Word of God can entertain any doubt on this point. Um, so, in your opinion, is, is, and I don't know what you've studied before tonight, but is Christ's divinity, is Christ's deity as clear as Louis Burkhoff says it is? This, is? this is a fair question. If you say, no, not exactly, that's fine. But are, are you convinced? Or to put it another way, did you have questions before tonight and tonight sealed the deal? And let me ask another question. So you have, have two options. You can answer one of those two. Or to, to get this away from ourselves, have you ever argued with someone who denied the deity of Christ? Jonathan had a, a great example. But have you ever argued with someone who denied the deity of Christ 
And if so, what were their sticking points? Why, why couldn't they say Jesus was God? So any of those things, feel free to, feel free to comment. Then you're, I mean, it's okay to debate, but if a debate leads nowhere, you just need to be like, all right, uh, here's, here's the gospel. And yeah, that's, that's good. Thank you for sharing, John. Anyone else found themselves in an argument or disagreement about the deity of Christ and, and what, were the, what were the sticking points? Why did that person not believe Christ was God? And it's hard when you're not playing from the same book. Like, you know, they would say, well, you know, they, they believe some of what the Bible says, but, you know, their translation is probably different, and it's all in light of what the Quran says. Similarly, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they, they take, they have their own translation, and there are some key points where it's just, it's just different. You know, Mormons have, air quotes, revelation after, after the Bible, so they're viewing the Bible through you know the the Book of Mormon and 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 what what the prophets have said. So, so yeah. So it's not even playing from the same same book. Their tradition or the the, the scriptures of their tradition uh, speak contrary to to Jesus's deity. Yeah. Thank you, Tara.
Yeah. That's good. Yeah, we, and we, yeah. so not only do we have to accept Jesus for his deity, we have to accept Jesus for who the scriptures say he is in more detail than just being, being God. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because not only was the word Lord just a, a way of speaking about God, I mean, there's a reason that God was called Lord because what we do, we submit to Him, we do what He says. Uh, yeah, good, John. Thank you very much. Great. So, w- moving on, why is Jesus's full deity necessary? Well, Wayne Grudem has, has three points. We'll move through this quickly so we can get on to some other other stuff. But Grudem says this. He says three reasons. First of this, first of which is this. Only someone who is infinite God, as I say, Jesus, only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of all those who would believe in him. Any finite creature would have been incapable of bearing that penalty. So for, for, for Jesus to bear the full wrath of God, he needed to be God. Second is salvation is from the Lord, which is what Jonah 2.9 says. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. And the whole message of Scripture is designed to show that no human being, no creature, could ever save man. Only God himself could. Third, only someone who is truly and fully God could be the one mediator between God and man, both to bring us back to God and also to reveal God most fully to us. Burkhoff says it this way, In the divine plan of salvation, it is absolutely essential that the mediator should also be very God. This was necessary in order that, one, he might bring a sacrifice of infinite value and render perfect obedience to the law of God. Two, he might bear the wrath of God redemptively, that is, so that, that is, so as to free others from the curse of the law. And three, he might be able to apply the fruits of his accomplished work to those who accepted him by faith. Man with his bankrupt life can neither pay the penalty of sin nor render perfect obedience to God. So Burkhoff has his three reasons why Jesus, it was necessary for Jesus to be God, or for rather for God to be, be Jesus. So that leads us to a question. So if Jesus is divine, so if Jesus is God, if Jesus is a deity, 
then how is this compatible with monotheism? Because you, you might think, well, he talks about God the Father and God the Son. Well, there's obviously two gods, and later Scripture talks about God the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's three, three gods, and, but that's not right because the Old Testament is very monotheistic. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So how do we, how do we reconcile this? Well, the answer is the doctrine of the Trinity. Doctrine of the Trinity. This is not a class on the Trinity, so we will not be talking about the Trinity in much depth because um, that would take four weeks in and of itself. But hopefully this, this will give us a little, um, a little satisfaction in, in the doctrine of the Trinity. So the definition of the Trinity is this. Grudem says... God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. So there's a lot of things in the Trinity that we have to hold on to. I, I use this imagery a lot, like, you know, we are responsible, you know, we should repent of our, our sins and believe in God. That's a clear command in Scripture. But on the other hand, we see that God has, has predestined, He's elected, He's, he's chosen. So how, how do we reconcile these things? I don't know. I just know that the Bible says this and the Bible says this, and I have to be, have to be fine with that. I'm not going to know everything. I never will. And so it's the same thing with the Trinity, except we need, we need some different hands. We need one more hand. So concerning the Trinity, the three truths about God to which we must hold. First, that there is one God, so there's one nature. So we have to remember there's one God. Second thing we have to remember, that God is three persons. That's the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the third thing we have to remember and hold tight to is that each of these persons is fully God. You lose any one of those and you fall into a heresy that's been condemned um, several hundred years ago. We have to hold these three things. And just as a way of reminder that all analogies meant to explain the Trinity fail. Um, I I wanted tonight to be... I don't know what the right word to say is. You know, good, reverent, um, you know, serious. There's a really funny, uh, funny video. I, I know Joe's seen it. Maybe some others have, have seen it. It's a cartoon some guy made. And it's, it's two Irish guys, um, you know, back in the 500s, 400s, 500s. And then there's St. Patrick. And the, the two Irish guys say, hey, Patrick, we're just local nobody's, could you explain the doctrine of the Trinity to us? And, and then Patrick says, well, the, the Trinity is like, and then he explains what, it, and then these two Irish guys are like, no, that's a, that's a heresy, Patrick. And, you know, it's, um, it's good. I'll, I'll remember who's here, and I'll try to, yeah, that's, that's it, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it gets good, and then eventually it talks about stabbing someone in the face, Patrick, and it gets a little, little intense, but. Um, you know, but before that, it's, 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 it's really good. Um, maybe if we have time before we leave tonight, we'll watch that. But, uh, anyway, but it's, it's really good. And the point of that is that all analogies fail. All analogies, uh, talking about the Trinity fail. They don't hold up. And I can't tell you how many times growing up, um, I've heard someone say, well, here, everything is bad, but this analogy, this is, this is really good. And the truth is, there's no, there's no great analogy. Um, you may have heard that the Trinity is like a tree, and that there's a tree, and it has roots, 
and has a trunk and has leaves. See those, but, but all these three, the, the roots, the trunks, and the leaves, all these are still the tree. Well, the, the problem is that there are three parts, and each part is not wholly the tree. So in the, in the Trinity, if we equated that with the Trinity, we'd say that um, you know there are three, three parts, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the problem is, is that the, the root isn't fully the tree, but the Holy Spirit is fully, fully God. So it, it, it breaks down. You might have heard that water, because water can be in three forms, ice, water, steam, and it's still water. The problem here is that no quantity of water is ever all three at the same time. And the second is the different forms, ice, water, steam, have different properties and characteristics. The third, you might have heard this, and this is, this is an ancient heresy for sure. There, there could be a guy, a man, who is a banker, let's say, but he's also the mayor of his town, and he's an elder of his church all at the same time. So he's, he's still one guy, but he has three different roles. That's an ancient heresy called modalism. The man is still just one person. That's the problem. The man is still just one person. But in the Trinity, there are three persons, one nature. So all analogies fail. So let's stop using analogies. We have to keep it simple and hold to the three truths above. So there's this little excursus on the Trinity simply because a lot of us can, if we haven't thought about this, we'll, we'll be like, well, it says there's God the Father and God the Son. There must be, must be two gods. No, the church has struggled through this. They've found that Scripture is best represented um, by, by talking about God being a trinity. Maybe we'll have a class on it one of these days. Suffice it to say, we need to hold to the trinity, and this gets, around, gets us around the problem of there being, there being two gods. Any questions on the trinity? <laughs> right? I have some. Um, Fully explained. Uh, see Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the early church struggled with this, and they just had to come up with how, how best do we talk about God? Not how do, we, how do we make it all work, but how best do we find what Scripture says and then formulate it in a simple way of, of saying? Because the word Trinity isn't in Scripture. It's a, it's a Latin word that's, um, um, you know, that just fits our theology very well. Thank you, John. Uh, other questions? about the Trinity.
Yeah, a foreshadowing, maybe we can call it. Uh, that's probably not the right word, but, but yeah. So it's one of those things where, you know, if I were, um, if I were an Israelite reading that scripture, would I be like, why does it say, why does it say us? I don't know if I'd fully be conscious of that, and maybe it could be like, well, it's the royal we, you know, how the, how the queen says we, you know, the people of England or, or whatever. Um, but definitely, now that we have the New Testament and we, we see the truth there, yeah, we look back on it, and there's a lot of things. I mean, even things that, like, point to Christ, you know, an Old Testament Israelite might not get it, but, man, crystal clear now. And so, yeah, it's neat to see those, those places. And, you know, even in the New Testament where, you know, all three members of the Trinity are referenced in, like, a couple of verses right by each other, you know. Um, yeah, there's, there's a couple places, several places where that happens. Um, that's, that's good stuff. Thanks. Thanks, Adam. Great. Well, I'm going to move on before there are uh, actual questions that... Um, well, there are going to be questions. Uh, I have questions, um, but we have to be fine with, with the truths that we see in Scripture. So, getting short on time, um, historical heretical views regarding the deity of Christ. Ebionism, I'll let you read that. We talked about adoptionism the first week. Um, it's like Jesus was just a guy, but a holy guy at his baptism. Um, God put, uh, some God adopted him as his son, put a Put it, gave him supernatural powers, and then he became um, God or divine-like. That's not what Scripture teaches. But the big one is Arianism. And as John alluded to earlier, there are modern-day Arians. This is not some heresy that's in the 4th century and 5th century. Um, this is alive and well. They don't call themselves Arianism, Arians, but um, Saturday morning I had a conversation with two Arians. They came to my door, and they said, Hi, were Jehovah's Witnesses and modern-day Arians. They wouldn't hold to everything that Arius held to, but, um, but their belief about Christ is, is Arian theology. Arianism would, would say this. Christ is represented as pre-temporal, so before time, superhuman creature. Creature being created creature, the first of all creatures, not God, and yet more than man. That's a definition from Louis Burkhoff. So there's a guy named Arius. He was in the fourth century, and it's, it's really hard to find out exactly what he believed, because I think there's only one writing of his that still exists, and it's a letter. But so many people were fighting and arguing with him and they, they quoted or referenced Arian's works, Arius' works, so we're kind of reliant on those. So um, it's hard to, I mean, how do you say what someone thought when you just rely on other people, what they said about them? So it's not fair in a sense, but that's, that's all we have. So Arius is purported to have believed that God, this, I, I believe this is... Um, this is Athanasius talking about Arius's view. Arius believed that God was not always a father. There was a time 
when God was all alone and was not yet a father. Only later did he become a father. Arius believes that the son did not always exist. Everything created is out of nothing. So the logos of God came into existence out of nothing. There was a time when he was not. Before he was brought into being, he did not exist. He also had a beginning to his created existence. And this is bad. This is bad. So Arius is saying that, that Jesus was created, not quite God, but more than, more than a human. And he had a biblical basis for his views. Um, Colossians, he's the, invisible, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So when, when Scripture talks about Christ being the firstborn, Arius is like, well, he must have been born. There must have been a time where he was not. John 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So occasions where it talks about God the Father and Jesus at the same time. And I skipped a line up here, um, fourth line down, third line down from the letter B, uh, the point B. I, I don't want to say to be fair, but it seems that Arius was so intent on monotheism, monotheism being good, right? So intent on monotheism that he could not affirm the deity of Christ. So his, his intentions may have very well been been good, for lack of better terms. Like he, he was trying to make it all work, but he's like, I have to affirm monotheism. Therefore, it seems that Jesus wasn't, wasn't God. And then you can uh, reason, and this is the Jehovah's Witness I was talking to referenced, referenced this. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. This is Jesus being, speaking. Because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. So the Jehovah's Witness says, well, Jesus says that the Father is greater than he is. Therefore, that Jesus must not be God. So Arius' position can be summed up as follows, and this is summarized by theologian Alistair McGrath. First, Arius believed that the Son is a creature who, like all other creatures, derives from the will of God. Second, the term Son is thus a metaphor, an honorific term intended to underscore the rank of the Son among other creatures. It does not imply that the Father and the Son share the same being or status. And third, the status of the Son is itself a consequence of the will of the Father. It is not a consequence of the nature of the Son, but of the will of the Father. So you can, you can read this more slowly in your, your free time to fully get what Arius believed. But the, the basis, the, the main point that Arius had was that there was a time when Jesus was not Jesus was created. And now there was this other guy, a good guy. So, growing up, kid stories, good guys, bad guys. Arius, bad. Guy named Athanasius, good. He argued for the deity of Christ. Athanasius, by the way, was exiled five times. I believe it's five times because of his belief in the deity of Christ. Because the issue wasn't settled everywhere. Certainly, the deity of Christ was true, but there were a lot of Arians. And there was a lot of people who believed in orthodoxy and whoever had power at the time kind of kicked the others out of their, their posts. And Athanasius exiled five times um, because of what he, he believed, because of the truth. So I'm trying to think. I need to skip something. But 
I will say this. Um, so if you look at those two terms there, the debate between orthodoxy and Arianism centered around the two terms to describe Christ's relationship to the Father. We have homoousios and homoousios. What's the difference between those two words? I. Right, right in the middle. I. One little letter. But the definition changes drastically. Homoousios means of similar substance. Homoousios means of the same substance. So you could kind of, you can't do this with every Greek word, but there's kind of an English relative. So if you look at the bottom term, homoousios, if you've heard the term homogenize, that means all, all, this, all the same. So homo means same in, this, in, in the, the Greek. Homoousios, ousios means substance, um, I guess that's the best translation. But the word homoi means similar. So one little letter in the Greek, it's a yoda. Homoi usios. And no, I didn't say yoda. Emily Brian, I, I, right? Am I right? The Barnett's real chuckling, I think. <laughs> Brian said yoda. He watches Star, Star Trek. <laughs> Just kidding. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yoda. Homoousios, homoousios. So this was, this was the debate. How do we speak about Jesus and his relationship to God? Is Jesus homoousios? Is Jesus of similar substance? Or is he homoousios of the same substance? Well, they talked about this, and, and thank God, the, the Nicene Creed of 381 declares this. The, every, the bishops came together, and they agreed upon this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Here's the kicker. Being of one substance with the Father. So the same substance is the Father. And it goes on to say some other very good things. If you flip to page 9, that term being of one substance with the Father, that's the word homoousion, homoousios of the Father. So Athanasius, his view triumphed. Arius' view was condemned as a heresy, as not right thinking. Um, But again, as, as we've talked about Arianism is not only an ancient heresy. Modern days, Jehovah's Witnesses hold the belief that Christ was a created being and is not God. That's what our whole discussion Saturday morning revolved around. I know that's the point that they, where we disagree. There's a lot of other points where we disagree, but that's, that's the main one. So I told them I was a devout Christian or a committed Christian. I don't know what language I used. Um, I was a Southern, Southern Baptist. And you know, I said, you know, just for, I knew what they believed. But I said, you know, just for edification, so you guys believe, was, do you guys believe Jesus was, was God? And that's how I, I got him on that, that topic. We talked about that the, the whole time. And uh, I don't want to say agree to disagree, but we just disagreed and they, they went on their way. It was very amicable, but, um, you know, it's, it's so funny, too. Like, my parents came up Saturday morning, and I was sitting at the table, and I saw two people walk to my door. I'm like... Jehovah's Witnesses, and it was my parents, so I'm like, oh, hey, mom and dad, 
And then literally half an hour later, or, or so about, you know, knock, 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 two people, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, so, yeah. So who else believes this? What is another heresy? Well, modern liberal, liberal Christianity, they don't, a lot of uh, liberal Christians um, wouldn't give Jesus deity as we would. Um, so let's look at a couple difficult passages, and then we'll, we'll get on to, to our hymn. Um, so Colossians. Or, you know, it talks about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation. I can't say it better than the ESV study Bible does in this sense, so I'll just quote this. It would be wrong to think in physical terms here, as if Paul were asserting that the Son had a physical origin or was somehow created, the classic Arian heresy, rather than existing eternally as the Son, with the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Godhead. What Paul had in mind was that the rights and privileges of a firstborn son especially the son of a monarch who would inherit ruling sovereignty. This is how the expression is used of David. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the that's probably kings of the earth, the highest of the kings of the earth. So it's not, when, when Paul uses this language, he's not talking about um, Christ being, being born, but the imagery of the firstborn, how he's given certain things, he's giving rights and privileges. Um, and certainly we could talk a lot more about this firstborn language. And this is why the creeds say begotten, not made. He was, he's the firstborn, but he's not created. And then, as we said earlier, as John 14, it finishes with, for the Father is greater than I. The ESV study Bible. In saying that the Father is greater than I, Jesus means that the Father, as the one who sends and commands, is greater in authority or leadership than the Son However, this does not mean that Jesus is inferior in his being in essence to the Father, as these other verses clearly show. Here's the important thing. In every situation, we have to remember the analogy of faith. And that basically says, let Scripture interpret Scripture, and that we interpret the less clear parts of Scripture in light of the more clear parts of Scripture. So say we come across a hard verse like Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, that's, that could be confusing at face value. Wait, it's saying Christ is the firstborn, so he was born? But we see in every other instance in Scripture very clearly that Jesus is God. He was not created. So with all that proof, we come to this verse and we have to say, well, obviously it can't mean that Jesus was created. So it has to mean something else. So we let, let the clear, the very clear parts of Scripture interpret the, the harder parts of Scripture, the, the murkier parts of Scripture, the parts of Scripture that require a little more energy. All right. We are have one minute left. Implications, Jesus is God, therefore God can be known because Jesus came to us. He revealed true, truly, he revealed God to us. Jesus is God, therefore we can worship him. Jesus is God, therefore we can pray to him. Um, with all that being said, before we sing our hymn, any, any questions or comments? Great. All right. Feel free to see me afterwards. Feel free to shoot me an email. Catch me on a Sunday morning. But uh, I'd like us, like us to sing this, this hymn. Um, I'm going to turn the recording off. And the speaker's off for...